Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. We are going to be in the book of Amos today, right after Joel for Obadiah. Let's go ahead and turn there, and we're going to start uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture and your word. We thank you for your continued grace to us. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you are gentle with us. We thank you for the difficult parts of Scripture. We thank you for the parts of Scripture that we gravitate to and those that we don't. And we thank you for the whole Word of God. We pray that you would help us to conform ourselves to what we see in the Bible before us, that you'd encourage us, that we'd look to you for hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the 8th century B.C., the voice of the Lord is heard in Israel like a roaring lion. In Amos chapter 1, we read that the Lord roars from Zion. Why is the Lord roaring from Zion? It is because his creation has assaulted his holiness, has dishonored his name, has trampled over his law, and has challenged his authority. The Lord thunders because of an unruly and unholy creature. The planets obey their Lord by remaining in their orbits, but mankind is constantly rebelling and transgressing. The Lord, in his anger, commits himself to the destruction of Israel when he says in Amos 9 this, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Caramel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. You can take this to the bank. The Lord is exalted in his holiness. And as his creatures, we are not permitted to violate or to challenge that holiness. We are not permitted to transgress his law or to violate his word. And the Lord will take these transgressions seriously. And for all those who would have the audacity to challenge him through disobedience, you have good reason to be deathly afraid. The Lord is not messing around and the Lord is not playing games. But the fierce wrath of God 
is not his lone, solitary attribute. The Lord is good, and the Lord is kind, and the Lord is patient. And it is with great joy and great hope that we look to the ending of the book of Amos, where we read this in chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. One of my goals as a pastor is to help us as Christians to become whole Bible Christians. This is a phrase that um, I've used a number of times. I want to be the kind of Christian that can both tremble at the wrath of God and rejoice in his great mercy. I don't want to pick my favorite attributes of God and pretend like those attributes are the only attributes of God. I don't want to develop a lopsided theology that creates God in my image instead of recognizing that I am created in God's image. We are actually warned of this very thing in Psalm 50 in verse 21 where God condemns this way of thinking and he says this, you thought that I was just like you. You made a serious error. This is one of the biggest issues that we face is that we believe that God is like us. I would overlook that and therefore God would overlook that too. I would forgive that and therefore God would forgive that too. We believe that what we think are God's most important attributes actually are his most important or his only ones. And the attributes of God that sometimes, I think if we were honest, we would admit this, that there are attributes of God that embarrass us. The attributes of God that embarrass us, we think also embarrass God too. Let me hide that attribute. Some of us, if we were to go around and talk to each of us here, some of us are more prone to cling to the commands of Scripture. Just tell me what it is that the Scripture says I must do. Some of us relate better to some of the experiences in Scripture, like David in the Psalms, where he tells us he's wrestling through doubt or riding on this wave of joy, and we kind of gravitate to those portions of Scripture. Some of us gravitate more to the love of God. Some of us gravitate more toward the wrath of God. Some prefer to talk of what our responsibility is. Some prefer only to talk about the doctrines of grace. Some would rather see the Bible primarily as an instruction manual full of practical advice. Some would rather see the Bible as a unified story that teaches us about the nature of God and his redemption. Now, the problem is not meditating on these things, teaching these things, preaching on these things, emphasizing these things, and believing these things. The problem is when we get tunnel vision so that we see only one thing in the Bible. The Bible is only about this. My pet Doctrine, pet attribute. The problem is that we can very easily become reductionists. We only want to hear about our one favorite doctrine. We only want to hear about our one favorite attribute of God. We only want to hear about our one favorite task or responsibility that God has given to us. If a pastor preaches, for example, on something that is not our favorite doctrine... 
we say, oh, he's done injustice to the text. He didn't emphasize this particular doctrine. The book of Amos rescues us from this madness. And this is what we're beginning today. This is the first sermon in a series on the book of Amos. Last week, we finished 1 Corinthians. We had been in that book a little bit over a year. And today uh, marks the first day of a series in the book of Amos. And the reason that Amos rescues us from this madness is because if you do not pick and choose the verses in Amos, but rather go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you will see an entire range of attributes of God, commands, principles, and responsibilities laid out for us. We'll see the whole gamut, the whole range of these kinds of things. This book, in other words, helps us to become whole Bible Christians. Some of us may feel distance from this particular book of the Bible. We feel like, what do you do with this book of the Bible? It's so far removed from us culturally, socially, through time. How do I handle this particular book? Yet, as far as we may feel from the prophecy in Amos, and as distant as we may feel through culture and time, we have more in common with the book of Amos than first meets the eye. Let me give you the message. I'm going to give you the message of Amos in four statements. And we'll see how much we can relate to this. You want to know what Amos is about? Here's what it's about. God's people sin. God punishes his people for their sin. God calls his people to repentance. God promises restoration for his people. That's what Amos is about. Culture changes, nations rise and nations fall, society changes, language changes, but these four things continue on. Let, let me give to you, uh, I'm, I'm going to re-summarize these statements in four different statements um, that, that maybe relate to us more today. Uh, And I'm going to suggest to us that outside of these four statements, there's really not much of anything else going on in the world. If you want to know what is going on in the world today, here's what's going on in the world today. People are sinning, and people are repenting. God is judging, and God is saving. Outside of this, there's really not a whole lot that's going on. You're sinning? against the Lord, or you're repenting, God is judging, and God is saving. And while this book of Amos may give to us a number of uh, geographical and political details that we find ourselves very unfamiliar with, the thrust of the book, the message of the book, is something that we can relate to and is also relevant and applicable for us today because we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and is sufficient. And so let's go ahead and begin the book of Amos. We're going to start, and we're going to look at three things today. And this is going to be our initial 
overview message of the book. We're going to look at a number of verses kind of scattered throughout the book. Uh, But next week, Lord willing, is when we're going to get into chapter 1, verse 1, and go bit by bit. This is our overview message. And so there's three things that I want to see today. Number one, we're going to look at a little bit of background information to help us understand the context, to help us as much as we can to understand some of the details that may be unfamiliar with us. Then I want to look at two of the main themes that are threaded throughout this book, and that is the theme of false worship and of injustice. And so let's begin here with the background information in the book of Amos. Amos was a blue-collar worker called to be a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. He was called to be a prophet during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in Israel. Now this was, of course, as you know, during the divided kingdom. I don't know how well this will show up here, uh, but you can kind of see this is the whole divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And you can kind of see right here, you've got Uzziah and Jeroboam, and you can see their reigns in here. So Amos is prophesying right in the middle, right in that time frame. Based on the dates of these two kings and their reigns, it had to be during both of their reigns, okay? So we have a period between 767 and 753 B.C., This is a uh, period of 14 years when they both were on the throne. And so Amos is prophesying in this time period. Okay, it must be within these 14 years. Now, if we bring in a little bit of outside, well, some, some internal evidence and external evidence. Amos mentions in the very first verse of this book that he um, prophesies, you can look at the verse where it says, two years before the earthquake. Um, There were multiple earthquakes during this time. There is one notable earthquake that was recorded in 760 BC, which is right in the middle of this 14-year time period. Okay? And if this is the one he's referring to, which many commentators believe it is, then the book of Amos can be dated specifically to 762 BC. Okay? 762 BC or very close to there is the writing uh, in the time of these events. Amos writes the book uh, that bears his name during a time of political and material prosperity, both in Israel and Judah. Everything was going well, it was going great. And yet while there was material prosperity, there was rampant spiritual corruption, hence the need for the prophecy in front of us. I'm going to give to you a map, uh, and the uh, wording is a little bit fuzzy here, but this is a map during the time of Amos. Uh, The map is uh, actually called, um, or references during the reign of Jeroboam II and Uzziah. Um, And so this is kind of what Israel and the surrounding nations looked like during this uh, particular time. One of the things on this map, and if you want to see this later, I can show you more detail, is that in Amos 1 and 2, Amos gives a series of oracles, not against Israel and Judah, but against the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. And you can see here, though I don't think you can read them, uh, the the different nations and and the Bible references here, where you've got Moab, Edom, 
uh, so on and so forth, where these particular um, oracles are, are um, given uh, against them. Now keep in mind that while Amos did address all these nations surrounding Israel and Judah, his primary audience is the northern kingdom of Israel. We see this specifically in Amos 7 and verse 15, where we read, The Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. This is the primary target, the primary audience of where this, uh, this prophecy is written to. And so with these very, very brief remarks on the background of Amos, we come to the question that will occupy the rest of our time, and that is this. What does Amos say to Israel? What is his message to God's people at this particular time, in this particular place, and by implication, how does that message relate to us and where we are here today? And so we will look at the two main themes each in turn. Or each in turn. The first one is false worship. This is the first major theme that we see in the book. And of course, the problem of false worship is a perennial problem throughout Scripture. It comes up again and again and again and again and again. If there's anything that we can come to a conclusion about in Scripture, it is that God cares about the way in which he's worshipped. God does not leave open to us a form of worship and a variety of worship that we can create and say, let's worship in this manner. In fact, we have notable examples in Scripture where when this did happen, God's wrath was poured out against people worshiping him in an improper manner. God cares about the way in which he is worshiped. We see this as an example in Amos 4, verses 4 through 5. Now, let me tell you this before we read this, okay? This is God speaking to his people, and he is giving his people a very heavy dose of sarcasm right here, okay? He's telling his people to go and sin. Listen to the way this is written, okay? Come to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Come on, do this. Go ahead and sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for so you love to do. <laughs> o people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Of course, Israel had been going to Bethel and Gilgal and worshiping in ways not prescribed by the Lord. And the Lord, to kind of arrest their attention, uses this heavy dose of sarcasm to kind of get their attention to say, wake up, go ahead, yes, yeah, sin, do all you want, transgress, do whatever, you, worship me however you want to worship. Today, we could say, we, we, we could uh, put this in the modern vernacular in a number of ways. You might uh, perhaps put it this way and use sarcasm to call out America for our own sins. America, go ahead. 
Trample over marriage and the family by pursuing hookup culture and one-night stands. Go ahead. Then, then go to worship on Sunday morning and worship in a way that makes you feel good and in a way that, that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable at all. Sing songs that stir up your emotions and leave you on an emotional high but tell you nothing of the holiness of God. Go ahead. Do these things for you love to do this, America. You could give multiple examples like this. The Lord is using sarcasm to, 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 to draw them out of this chaos. But of course, sarcasm is not the only thing used here in this passage or in this book to draw the attention of his people. We have in Amos 5, verses 4 through 6, a very serious call to holiness. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. The call from God here in this passage is simply this. Seek me and live. Worship me. In the way that I have prescribed to you. Now we are talking, if you recall here, about the reign of Jeroboam II. But do you remember what Jeroboam I did? Remember the kingdom splits and Jeroboam is fearful of something. He is fearful that the people in his northern kingdom are going to leave and go worship in Jerusalem where God had prescribed this to happen. And so what did Jeroboam the first do? He created unsanctioned places of worship in Israel so that the Israelites would not have to leave his borders to go worship so that he could contain them here. 1 Kings 12, 28 through 30 details what happened. And we read there that Jeroboam I actually made golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Not only did Jeroboam I say, worship here instead of there, but he he instituted false worship, worship of a false god. He's going to put calves up here so they can worship there. Now, fast forward to 2 Kings 14 and verse 24, where we read that Jeroboam II did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam I. Meaning that this false worship persists in Jeroboam II's day. This is why God is calling them, don't go to Bethel. <laughs> These false worship going on in ways that God has not prescribed. And so Israel is first and foremost engaging in false worship. And secondly, a subset of this is that they are practicing syncretism. Syncretism means that you are putting together multiple kinds of worship so that they were actually worshiping the true God alongside of the false gods. Syncretism. They were mixing it all together. And we see this in Amos 5, uh, verse 26. 
where we read, You shall take up Sikath your king, and Kayun your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves. See, they're worshiping this star god, Kayun. And so they are mixing together in one pot worship of all of these false gods with worship of the true God, which is something that the Lord despises. Israel, in the book of Amos, is engaging in false worship. That is big theme number one written all over the the pages of this prophecy. The second big theme that we see in the book of Amos is the theme of injustice. In fact, probably I would guess that most Christians, if they know anything of the book of Amos, know this. The book of Amos is about injustice. This theme is that Israel's prior rejection of the Lord led to their injustice. This is always the pattern. A rejection of God leads to chaos and injustice. It will always, that will always happen. You can never reject God without it, without chaos, without injustice. You may recall, um, maybe the most well-known verse in Amos, at least one of them, Amos 5, 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Or consider this, uh, a call um, to uh, pull them out of their injustice. We read Amos 6.12, Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with an oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You have turned justice into poison. Their false worship and rejection of the Lord had led to this injustice. Amos addresses the injustice going on in his day in Israel and the pursuit of, as some have called it, social justice, and I mean social justice in the proper sense of the term, is indeed a big theme in the book, to pursue justice in the gate, in the community, in the culture. But one of the noteworthy observations in this book is that justice cannot be pursued independently from one's pursuit of the Lord. This is, this is something, this is, this is a very big theme in the book because the Lord does not leave the option available for Israel to pursue justice apart from him. The calls to pursue justice are intertwined with the calls to seek the Lord, meaning that you can't have one without the other. We, um, ironically, just ended the book of 1 Corinthians on this theme, namely that you can't have obedience without Christ. We said that it is either Christ or immorality. There is no such thing as morality without Christ. You must have Christ. There is no such thing as a religiously neutral culture that is a morally good culture. It must be Christ or immorality. 
One individual has said it this way, and I think is a pretty good way to summarize this uh, idea, and that is this, Christ or chaos. There's no third way. And this, of course, is seen all across the book of Amos. We know this because the commands to pursue justice are swimming in an ocean of theology. The context of the command, establish justice in the gate, is seek Yahweh and live. It's not pick and choose who you want to worship, and then, by the way, go establish. It's seek Yahweh and live, pursue justice in that context. We must see this and believe this. We have to understand that it is Christ or chaos, and that there is no morality apart from him. We must, we must, we must permanently eradicate the thought that we can have a religiously neutral but morally good society. You cannot and will not have a religiously neutral but morally good society. If there is to be any hope at all, for the moral restoration of our society, of our community, of American culture, of our nation, of our city, it will be in this, making our pursuit of morals, of morality, one and the same as our pursuit of Christ. There's no alternative. It has to be the same. The message of Amos, therefore, is the same message that must be preached to Orville, Ohio, and that is this, seek the Lord and live. That is the message in Amos. It is to establish justice by seeking the Lord. Through seeking the Lord. Establish justice and seek the Lord in one movement. And so we say the same to our brothers and sisters in this community. Any cultural good that we propose to our community... Anything that we want to say to our community, go and behave in this manner, in this fashion, go and do this, must be tied together with the command to seek the Lord, okay? So if we want to say to our community, stop using drugs, we would say stop using drugs by seeking the Lord. Stop your crime and your theft by seeking the Lord, Stop your abortions by seeking the Lord. Stop your whatever through seeking the Lord. There is no neutral ground, no neutral territory where there are commonly shared values. We cannot all agree as a society that theft is wrong. What happens when society doesn't think theft is wrong? It's uniquely and exclusively a Christian imperative. It's founded in the character of God. We cannot all agree as a society that murder is wrong. That's not a shared value. It's a uniquely Christian value. 
without biblical foundations and theological moorings and Christological anchors and religious support, we are adrift at sea and every man does what is right in his own eyes. Christ or chaos. We need Christ in the courtroom. We need Christ in education. We need Christ in the legislature. We need Christ in law enforcement. We need Christ in health care. We need Christ in our banks. And we need Christ in all of life. Amos does not argue along morally neutral lines appealing to some sort of shared values that the Christian has with the pagan. He specifically calls them back to proper worship. He does not say, and we as Christians do not say, okay, we're going to check our Bibles at the door, we're going to check our Christianity at the door, and we're going to determine what we can all get around together with our shared common values. Is not the present state of our nation evidence of this? Things... Things that you thought and I thought, things that we thought was a commonly shared, to, shared value 20 years ago is not anymore. <laughs> 20 years ago, we can all get around, we can check our Christianity at the door, we can check all this at the door, but we can at least agree on this. <laughs> that that thing, the list of things, the grouping of things that we all could agree on is doing this. It's getting smaller. <laughs> what? We don't argue along morally neutral lines. That's how we got here. Here's how you argue in the town square. I'm going to tell you how you argue for righteousness in the town square. Here it is. Thus saith the Lord. You say this to the, 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 the legislature, the, the, the mayor, the psychologist, the whoever you want to throw in there. Thus saith the Lord. Oh, I don't believe in, in the Bible. I don't believe in gravity, but <laughs> it affects. I'm going to live in a world where gravity exists and exerts its influence on me, okay? Whether you believe in Scripture or not does not change the authority behind the statement, thus saith the Lord. It's true whether we believe it or not. This is the foundation, the foundation of a morally good society. I, Amos's call to establish justice in the gate is founded in proper worship and proper theology and proper doctrine and proper knowledge of who God is. 
We can only properly pursue justice in the gate when we are pursuing Christ. What then does all of this mean for us? First of all, this is maybe uh, tangential to the main thrust here, but but I I think it's relevant, and that is, I hope that through the study of this book, we will grow in our love for all of God's Word. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I understand that there are some passages, and they have a tendency in modern American evangelicalism to be kind of in the Old Testament, I am aware that some of these Old Testament passages seem very disconnected from us and unrelatable to us, and therefore we tend to see them as not relevant. Okay? What I hope happens through this study in this book is that we can grow in our love for every last word of Scripture. The whole thing. Whether it is your favorite pet doctrine or not, <laughs> the whole thing. In light of this, I want to give us three points of application, and I'm trying to make these points of application that are kind of covering the span of the whole book, picking up on these main themes. Um, And I'm going to do something a little bit different um, in the way that I put the the applications here, is I'm going to just have uh, kind of a connector word in between each of the points of application, and that is, uh, I'll just put it up here so you can see it. The application, the three applications arranged this way say, repent of false worship and establish justice in the gate by seeking the Lord. If I could summarize what I think the application of the book as a whole would be, this is how I would summarize it. Repent of false worship and establish justice in the gate by seeking the Lord. Now, what I want to do is I want to just expand on each of these three and zoom in just a little bit so that we can create a little bit more specificity to each of these points of application. The first point of application is to repent of false worship. And I think that we could probably spend an entire message, actually an entire series of messages on ways in which we could engage in false worship. And we could apply this in thousands, millions of ways in our daily lives. I'm just going to give you a few specifics here. Anything that produces high views of self and low views of God is false worship. This can be achieved through... Man-centered theology, man-centered preaching, man-centered worship, man-centered music, man-centered da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The things that elevate me and devalue God, that's false worship. Another way in which we can engage in false worship is to ignore God-prescribed methods to grow in our sanctification to ignore or minimize time in the Word, to ignore or minimize time in prayer, 
to ignore or minimize time in church and fellowship with our fellow believers is to, in one sense, to engage in false worship. We're not doing what God has called us to do in our worship. We also can engage in false worship when we think that God is made in our image. And we saw this in in, in, uh, Psalm 50 and verse 21, where we think that God is like us. And so I have a tendency to, to think of the world with me as the starting point, and I think that justice is what I think justice ought to look like, righteousness is what I think righteousness ought to look like, and God is what I think God ought to look like. This is one of the reasons why we are so forgiving with ourselves and so harsh with other people. I mean, all of us, I think, have to confess this, that when we sin in a specific way, we have a tendency to be very, oh, well, I, I had to do it because of da 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 When your neighbor sins in the exact same identical way, are you as gracious to that person? No. You're harsh with that person. That's, kind of, that's a result of thinking that God is like me. Oh, God, God understands where I'm coming from, but certainly not that person. The second point of application is that we are to establish justice in the gate, in the community. Um, and again, there's a lot of ways to, um, to, to apply this specifically. Um, one application would be to advocate for or vote or whatever godly laws and godly leaders. Um, most of us probably will never have the opportunity to make big changes at a national level, but we can have an impact on our own community and the people that we do business with and the people that we see face-to-face to promote justice there. This could be uh, some of us Christians running for local office, okay? Uh, some of you maybe need to pray on this. I'm not saying every Christian is called to this, but it may be that the Lord has called some of us to that. Um, and we ought to strive for ways in which we can promote justice in the gate. Again, not divorced from seeking the Lord, but through it, because of it, by it. And finally, the last application, the third one, is seeking the Lord. Uh, Again, a thousand ways to apply this. Seek the Lord by running your business in a godly manner, through prayer, evangelism, Bible reading, etc. We can point our friends and neighbors to Christ by telling them how Christ is the answer to the problems of the world, not the answers provided by the secularists or the spirit of the age. See Christ. Your hope to overcome this drug addiction or whatever it might be is in Christ. He is the answer to this. At the end of the day, the book of Amos pushes us toward Christ and toward his righteousness. From that perspective, we can conclude most assuredly that the, that the book of Amos is Christ-centered in that way. It is gospel-centric. It is theocentric. It is God-centered. 
It starts with God. It receives, we receive the, the, the strength and grace to obey this book from God. It's for his purposes, it's for his pleasure. And this tells us that even here in 2022, the gospel still matters. And the gospel is still relevant. And the gospel is still the way to Christ and to the saving of our community. We need Christ, we need the Lord, and we need his grace. Thank you, God, so much for your grace to us and your mercy. Help us to apply this book to our own hearts and lives that we might go forth seeking justice through seeking the Lord. Help us to repent of false worship. Help us to worship you in the manner that you have prescribed. We thank you for your grace to us in Christ's name. Amen.